Hair metal is a derisive term applied to the slick, pretty and pop-oriented heavy metal and hard rock bands of the late 80s. Hair metal bands like Whitesnake, Bon Jovi, Poison, Motley Crue, they topped the charts in the late 80s, crowding out every other band with their fist-pumping anthems. By 1987 it seemed like there was simply no room at the top for another band to stand out. But five rebellious youngsters living in Los Angeles were determined to try. They banded together to produce a monumental album of sex, drugs and rock and roll to fight their way, kicking and screaming into the music world. The band were not successful initially. They were too rebellious, too punk for any radio or television station to take a chance on them. Their singles were banned by the BBC for being too racy during the Thatcher era. MTV staunchly opposed playing their videos, relegating them to graveyard slots at 4am on a Sunday night but young fans partying past midnight caught sight of their music videos anyways. And legend has it, the switchboard at MTV caught fire after their track caused an overload of calls to short-circuit the board. The band's popularity was exploding. By 1988, one year and 16 days after its release, Appetite for Destruction hit number one on the Billboard charts. Guns N' Roses had gone from unplayable to undeniable. Appetite for Destruction is the best-selling debut album of all time, with estimates putting sales at a cool 30 million copies, which is why it is little surprise hardly anyone remembers that Twisted Sister released their fifth and final studio album, Love Is For Suckers, three weeks later. Why was Twisted Sister so thoroughly and completely blown away? Have these two hair metal bands aged as poorly as the fashion? And can you really hear someone having an orgasm on a Guns N' Roses track? We're going to find out. Welcome to When Albums Collide. The When Albums Collide podcast, Jod Boas with you, joined by Pedro Duran. Pedro, how are things? Good. I am good. Surviving Corona and... um. I'm good. How are you, Judd? I tell you what, eleven episodes in the row, and you've been good every single time we record. <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty good record. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, being good is, I guess, better than being bad. You know. So. <laughs> Damn. Damn. That's deep. That's like a logic lyric. I know. We have some listener mail, and I'm very excited for this. Oh it wow! It was a listener um, that loved our review of Head Over Heels, the uh, Paula Abdul yes. versus Alanis Morissette. And uh, they made a video clip for Hoedown, which is my favorite song off the album, a, a real favorite around the podcast, yeah. Hoedown. I still love that song. Yeah, it's dope. And, you know, I said, oh, thanks so much. That, that means a lot. And I said, like, what, how, can we, how can we help? How can we, you know, help you out? And they said, well, I'm kind of on a personal campaign to get people to buy Hoedown now after your podcast and would also be cool if they could see that video and subscribe to my YouTube channel. So... If you want to find some more Paula Abdul content, and I would say the best damn Paula Abdul content going around, you can subscribe to their YouTube channel. It's Abdul underscore like underscore Paula, or same thing for Instagram, Abdul like Paula. Personal mission to get people to buy Hoedown, and I wholeheartedly support it. That is a banger of a song. Thank you so much. If you yes. want to reach out to us, we got Facebook. We got Instagram. We got it all. Just reach out to When Albums Collide. You can find us all over the place, and uh, we love hearing from you. Definitely. So, on to today's business. Pedro, we're talking Guns N' Roses and Twisted Sister, the rise and rise of hair metal. Uh, What do you know about hair metal in general? How do you feel about it? And then Guns N' Roses and Twisted Sister specifically. Well, hair metal, it is... um... It's always been kind of uh, a funny thing to to listen to. I mean, I consider myself a 90s kid. So as it being an 80s baby, I missed out on the height of it. Um, I was too young to really understand it. Um, So by the time I was, you know, cognitive and listening to music, hair metal definitely had been uh, off the mainstream music scene so going back and watching videos on mtv after dark or mtv flashback or whatever vh1 or whatever i would always have to look at 
uh, hair metal, listen to hair metal bands like, I don't know, like Warrant or White Snake or bands like Twisted Sister. Uh, look, look at them from afar. Do you know what I mean? This is like almost like classic music or old old music. So it was already oldies by the time you would sort of yeah you were into it exactly. And um, I, there's some bands that replicate the sound now, like the Darkness. I love the Darkness, and they replicate the I sound. Be- I can't believe you like the Darkness. I do, but I like it because they're so uh, they're ironic with it, you know. And I think that's what uh, that's why I really enjoyed about uh, about them. They don't take themselves too seriously. So that's uh, uh, what I know about hair metal. And then as far as with like Guns N' Roses, I mean, Appetite for Destruction is a massive album. I first was introduced to them through uh, Behind the Music. Um, you're familiar with that, Doc. A, re- a recurring theme on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Shouts out to Paul Creasy. So yeah, um, Behind the Music, Guns N' Roses, I just watched that documentary and I was just like, wow, it's so crazy, their story. So I went out and bought their their album, Appetite for Destruction, and just banged it and i remember i don't know maybe 14 15 just listening to it a lot um not appreciating it as much as i did this week but definitely realized even at uh, at that age that um this was a a classic album and it was a brutal album that's the best way i can describe it's just Mm. brutal it's hard rock in its purest form you know you can appreciate it more because there's more to it you know like a lot of albums sell a lot nickelback sells a lot yeah lots of albums sell a lot but the ones that sell many, many millions, and this is probably, I think, the best-selling debut album of all time. That's true, yeah. In the tens of millions, there's got to be something more to it than, oh, it just sounds pretty good. There has right. to be something special about it to sell, you know, you can, anyone can sell 5 million records with a hit song, but to sell, like, 30 million records is uh, another level. Mm, yeah, definitely. And um, I think we'll talk about it a little bit more as we get into it, what uh, added to those factors but with Twisted Sister, um, they, I mean, just for a point, they, all I knew was that massive song, you know, we're not going to take it. We're not going to take it anymore. And um, oh, you don't have to sing it. I, we all know the song. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I, I knew that. But I would definitely say I've always had an admiration, a personal admiration for Dee Snyder. I don't know if you saw in the research because of what he did when he spoke out against um, the Parents Music Resource Center group there was a committee that was formed like in 1985 and what they were trying to do was to increase parental control over you know the access of uh, of music that was deemed to be too violent or too sexual for kids and because of it we that's why we have parental advisory stickers on on albums to warn us of the the evils of rock and roll and and rap and the hip hop and all those things so anyway i saw a documentary with him and he goes and talks to congress and the day that he does it he shows up in his regular you know rock garb with the long hair and cut off denim shirts or whatever and these pompous congress people thought okay look at this you know fucking idiot we're going to wrap uh, talk circles around him. And he just presented his arguments very eloquently. Since I seem to be the only person addressing this committee today who has been a direct target of accusations from the presumably responsible PMRC, I would like to use this occasion to speak on a more personal note and show just how unfair the whole concept of lyrical interpretation and judgment can be and how many times this can amount to little more than character assassination. And he really basically shitted on them and had them eat in their words. So um, as a dude that stood up for uh, free speech, I always admired that about him. So he always, uh, I always was looking out for D. Snyder and what he had going on as far as projects and stuff. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm very unfamiliar with Twisted Sister. The only thing I know is is obviously the famous music video, We're Not Gonna Take It, and also that he kind of looks like Sarah Jessica Parker in mm. Hocus Pocus. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the two things that I have going for me. Yeah. Um, Guns N' Roses, different story, and this is quite a recent thing. Uh, I hate that I keep doing this on the podcast because it makes me sound like a total asshole. Okay. But I have I, I interviewed Slash um, okay. for my radio show. Really lovely guy. Re- not what I expected at all. Really down to earth. Yeah. It was over a telephone, obviously, because it's not going to fucking let me within 50 meters of that man. Yeah, yeah. Really, lo- I asked him about BMX riding. It was a big hobby as a kid. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to like the really early days, even maybe before the music a little bit, because uh, I read somewhere you were actually really, really good at BMX. That was my thing. I mean, I, I got into that heavily when I was uh, probably about 
13 until I was almost 15, I guess. was That was what I was doing when I, you know, before I picked up the guitar. And so, yeah, that was, that was, that was my thing. And I was aspiring to go from, uh, to, to move up from BMX to motocross. And I had absolutely no other ambitions at the time. And then and somehow, uh, you just ended up sort of picking up the guitar and it just, a, a switch went off and I've been playing guitar ever since. Really comfortable, really chill guy. I think he forgot that he was doing an interview like halfway through because he just started swearing if really? he was on the radio and I was like, oh yeah, maybe I'll give a little, uh, uh, spicy spicy. The odds are definitely stacked against you. So you have to really fucking love it and want to do it and, and sacrifice everything to be able to do it and you still might not be able to get through you know as a result of that they gave us free tickets to the Guns N' Roses show that was happening that night for the Not In This Lifetime tour and this is a tour that grossed over half a billion dollars that is an insane tour one of the biggest tours of all time 170 something shows but I went in sort of cynical, like I do with everything, by the way. Mm-hmm. I went in cynical, and I went with my friend Amanda, and we went sort of like, oh, this is going to be kind of lame, you know, Guns and Roses, like, come on. And we turn up at this massive expo. They sold it out two nights in a row. And there's all these, like, aging rockers with their, like, leather jackets. Yeah. And their faces have the consistency of leather as well. Oh, and, yeah. Like, real, like, you know, biker milfs and, like, real, like guys that were really attractive in high school and they got fat and bald. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a bit of a laugh, isn't it? You know? And it was one of the best concerts I've ever been to in my life. Really? It was fucking amazing. They played for something like three hours or something, which I didn't think they, I didn't think they were physically capable of, but they played three hours, all the hits, all the hits and covers as well. They did covers of like Velvet Revolver and all these. It was one of the best concerts I've ever been to. So I am now a Guns N' Roses fan, even though it's not very cool maybe to be a Guns N' Roses fan, but it was so good. So going into this, I knew it was going to be a good album. And well, let's just wait and see. Shall we dive into the album Pedro Duran? Yeah, let's do it. The first track on the album and there is a lot to get through on here welcome to the jungle debut album first track welcome to the jungle you couldn't say it better than this it is a track that lets you know exactly who these rat bags from la are and it does it in style yeah definitely i mean it's uh a perfect introduction everything even down to the title when he uh opens up with, with all that stuff and this is the first time i ever heard the ad lib then he goes oh my god and then he comes in with with the song i was reading in the research that they tend to open their concerts with this song is that true was that the ex- yeah, same that's true. Yeah, yeah exactly so i mean it's just it, it is what it is it's just a perfect introduction to an album and anytime you want to convey some kind of brutal landscape just play this song and i think people people uh get the point you know i mean that that opening like line axel rose's vocals amazing where he's like you know where you are you're in the jungle baby yeah. you're gonna die is yeah. amazing. and there's conflicting reports about where he heard that or he got that from some people are saying they were they hitchhiked to LA and then as they got off in LA the truck driver said to them you're in the jungle welcome to the jungle yeah uh, which is a but it's so it's about him writing a song about LA and how crazy it is and uh, what the city does to people yeah that's how I always took it as because um, I mean obviously they're a band from Los Angeles and very much have that LA vibe to them I know they're paying their dues on the Sunset Strip. And they're living that hard rock lifestyle. And that was very much the scene in the 1980s. So I just assume they're just talking about, you know, Los Angeles, just the, the brutalness of it. The, I want to say like the line eat line type of vibe that's that's out there. So. so as I mentioned, this is their debut album. And because they were scouted by Geffen Records and they're like, oh, these guys are special. Let's give them an album. As a result, their budget for the album in today's money was $839,000, which mm. for an, for a band to get that for their first album, never released any music, that is such a huge vote of confidence. Yeah. But if I was Geffen Records, I would have been shitting my pants because you don't know anything about these guys. These are like guys in their very early 20s, all addicted to heroin or worse. What, like, what is going, why are you giving them this much money? And the proof is in the pudding, but what a risk that was. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I think they... 
previously, even before they got signed, they already had this um, reputation for being these fucking wild boys, man. Just like drinking, getting coked up. If they needed a place to stay, they would just stay at some stripper's house, wake up, and just write a song, pass out, and do it all over again. So, um, um, yeah, as a as a music executive, it doesn't seem like a very, very good investment at all, you know, because it just seems like these guys are not uncontrollable. Their former manager, Arnold Stiefel, yeah. um, he went to visit them because they hired out this big house for them. Like, oh, you guys can live here, you know, and we'll, we'll pay for everything. And then he went to visit them one day, and this is what uh, he saw. Quote, I almost fainted. It was beneath the planet of the apes. It was beyond the valley of the dolls. It was so beyond imagining. I couldn't stop laughing. The band had torn the toilets from the floor and thrown them out the window. People were defecating in the sinks. The holes in the floor where the toilets got ripped off were filled with urine. There were half-eaten whoppers with mold on the wrappers. They would just go on these drug rages and just go berserk. So $839,000 for the album. I'm going to guess 50000 of that was spent recording the album, and the other 700000 was spent on repairing toilets and drugs. Yeah, definitely, you know. And it, it brings up a question I would like to ask at the end of the episode when we're done with everything about uh, the state of rock and rock stars. So, uh I'm going to bring it up uh, once we review everything. Opening track of Twisted Sisters, Love is for Suckers, Wake Up, brackets, The Sleeping Giant, which was a political song. This is sort of targeted Mm. at Washington, you know, The Sleeping Giant. Um, There is some aggression to this song, and I was a bit surprised. Like, oh, this is not a bad track. Mm. Um, It wasn't, like, compared to Welcome to the Jungle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, definitely. Like... I was mistakenly hoping that the the rest of the album would be pleasantly nice to listen to. Um, what did you think of Wake Up the Sleeping Giant? Well, I listened to this album first because I've listened to Appetite for Destruction a million times. So I wanted to come into this and get a feel for it. Yeah, I, I kind of interpreted it as another reach for another... We're not gonna take it like an anthem or rebellions a rebellion exactly. song. Exactly. Yeah, I I really really uh, digested it like that. I was like, I think this even the title "Wake Up the Sleeping Giant." Um, I felt it was an attempt to capture that magic that they had conjured up previously. I mean, they got lyrics like. It's almost too on the nose. Or what is it? What is trying to be compared to Welcome to the Jungle, and even the rest of Appetite for Destruction? I found Guns and Roses to to really be harder rock, you know. With Twisted Sister, it was rock, but it just it just doesn't fucking hit you in the teeth as hard as uh, GNR does. So. Yeah, so that and that was a reason for that, mm. um, because this was supposed to be Dee Snider's solo album. Yes, he I heard that. He was going to take a break from Twisted Sister and do the solo album, and, and we'll get into it. But look, Twisted Sister have exactly two songs. Mm-hmm. They have a loud sort of brash song that talks about like us versus them, them against the machine or the man, and it's like the boys versus you, and we're not going to take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they have another song, their second song, which is where they sing about how they'd like to lie down on top of a lady. Mm-hmm. Those are their two songs, okay? They have two songs, and they managed to stretch these two songs out across six studio albums and a Christmas special. Yeah, wow. It is truly a fascinating career. So the next song, Hot Love, real jukebox jam in some downtown bar. It's not hard rock at all. Mm-hmm. This is like Journey or Jefferson Starship. This is clearly them... We don't want to be metal anymore. Let's do a feel-good pop rock song called Hot Love. Yeah, it's it's glam rock, basically. Um, it's, it has a nice hook, I guess, but it's not, it, it, like I was saying before, it doesn't hit as hard as other rock bands, you know? And and what I mean by the the hook, like, it, it, it's just kind of, it, it does follow a pop structure when, you know, he's saying, like, we're talking about hot love, you're making me crazy. Hot love, you're making me bad. Like, it, it's so melodic that you have to question, like, oh, is this really hard rock or is it more of a, a, a power pop type of song, you know? The problem with it is it's also sort of, like, idealistic and, like, everything's great. Hot love, yeah, passion, hot love. Whereas Guns N' Roses are tinged with a sort of 
cynicalism. Yeah. Is that a word? Cynicism? Yeah. Uh, where they talk about, like in the song, It's So Easy, the next track, which is like, what a great one-two punch that is. Welcome to the jungle. And then It's So Easy. Yeah. Where they're talking about, like, they didn't have any money before this record deal. So they, like, as you said, as you mentioned earlier, they're just sleeping with different strippers who would, like, give them food and let them sleep over and take care of them because they were broke and homeless. And it was this sort of lifestyle, but because they were, like, really good looking and really good musicians and super charismatic, things were so easy. So hence the song, It's So Easy. They're talking about that emptiness of just using people. Mm -hmm. And it's real easy. Like, that is such a deeper concept than hot love where he just says the word love i don't know 54 times right. in the song yeah yeah definitely definitely it's it's funny because every time i try to um look this song up on the internet or spotify title whatever um whatever come the first song that tends to come first it's it's so easy by buddy holly which is a wildly different <laughs> song from this song And I do like both. I, I always did enjoy the song. The only criticism um, I will have with this is that I just don't like when Axel's voice isn't that high screeching. When he's doing that low uh, singing thing, I really? I don't like it when he's doing that. I, I prefer Axel when he's like screeching his fucking lungs out. Obviously, like that is his trademark. Yeah. Sound, right? Like everyone prefers that. But I like that he was showing range a little mm. bit like okay because i feel like mm, we do 45 minutes of just non-stop screeching i might get over it so at least he can show that he can do a little bit of both yeah i guess you know you have a point there i could also be complaining if it was straight an hour of him just yelling i might be on the other end be like oh why doesn't he do something different it, it's just song just never sat right with me um and i think that was just just it just him uh mm. just bringing it down an octave or a couple of octaves i was just like ah okay no, it's uh, it's still a banger, and uh, the guitar riff at the at the end, man, it's uh, it's hard as hell. So, um, I yeah, I always enjoyed this song very much. The titular track on "Lovers for Suckers," Twisted Sister, and I was listening through, it, and it's a pretty fun listen, but it's one in one ear, out the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do this talking thing, which I hate. Yeah. It's like a rap skit in the middle of a song. He's like, oh. Really, baby? Yeah. You're gonna do it with your heels on? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> you wanna get back together? You do, huh? Well, listen, honey, I'm just not interested. As we mentioned previously, this is supposed to be Dee Snider's break from the band. He's like, the band, you know, we didn't do so well with our last album. I'll just do a solo album. We'll take a break. I'm gonna write all the songs myself because he writes all the songs anyway. And it didn't quite work out that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is from his autobiography, Shut Up and Give Me the Mic. Quote, I became convinced that everything would be set right with the release of my next record, but what should that record be? Since Twisted Sister had become more of a mainstream act and the metal community had essentially turned their back on us, I believed my next move should be an even more mainstream album, and I was sure that my next release should also be a solo album. I didn't have any intention of quitting Twisted Sister, I just thought taking a break from the band and doing my own record was the smart move to make. It would give Twisted a break publicly, and I believed allow us to mount a comeback in a couple of years after the dust had settled. That didn't happen because the record label was like, no, you're not doing a solo album. We want Twisted Sister on this. We need the brand name recognition. Yeah. And so it was, it it did not work at all. And to make it even less of a Twisted Sister record than it already was, the band decided to take off all their war paint makeup and all their costumes that they got famous for to fit in with every other band out there. Mm. What a great marketing strategy that is. Yeah. That one thing that everyone loves you for, yeah, stop doing it. Yeah, change everything about yourselves and uh, try try to do that. I think you were saying at the top of the show, the band broke up or um, you saw that in the research after this album, the band just like totally went their separate ways. Yeah, want- so they broke up, and, and and his argument was, wow, what a great idea, putting, f- like, five guys that all hate each other in a room for three months and forcing them to make an album they don't want to make. Like, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, exactly. I saw, and I read in the research, you see they went on tour, but I think the tour only lasted a month um, before they just, like, gave it up, and they were like, fuck this, we're not doing this anymore. I wonder for D if it will, if it hit a lot harder for him because this music was meant to be his uh, solo album. I, I I believe all the all the tracks are written by him, and it was um it was a failure. And uh, I wonder if it really hit him personally to the point that he was just like fuck it because I don't think he ever really pursued a solo career. 
ever um, until what 2004 when the band got back together or something like that. Yeah, so this is this is you've nailed it on the head here. The difference between these albums is that Appetite for Destruction. It isn't just all Axl Rose or all Slash. Mm. It's a full collaborative effort. Yeah. So the songwriting credits are just cre- they all credited to all five members. All five members wrote the songs. And many of the songs began as solo tracks written by the individual members and they'd bring it to the band and they'd all work on it together. Mm-hmm. So It's So Easy is Duff McKagan, the bassist. Think About You is Izzy Stradlin, the rhythm guitarist. Rocket Queen wasn't even a Guns N' Roses song. It was a song from Slash's earlier band with Duff and Adler mm-hmm. that survived called The Road Crew. These are from all, they're all sharing the duties. And maybe that's why there's very few filler tracks, I felt. Yeah. Everyone's bringing their best song that they've written over the past, you know, five years. This is going to be an all-star hit. Whereas Dee Snider has to write all the music for the entire album by himself. No wonder he runs out of juice after, like, four songs. Yeah. He has nothing left to give. And Duff McKagan has been quoted as saying, Axel was super open about it. He says he wasn't just like, oh, I'm the singer. I have to write everything. He wasn't serving his ego or anything because they didn't have egos yet. It's their debut album. They're just like, yep, let's get everything, all your best songs onto the album. Yeah, for sure. And so, and that continues with Night Train, which is a really, I like this song. Izzy Stradlin was quoted in 1988 talking to Rolling Stone saying, rock and roll in general has sucked a big dick since the Sex Pistols. (laughs) So, you know, these are the, like, they're just idiots, young hoodlums. Making rock and roll music. Night Train is named after a cheap wine that they used to drink. Yeah. Duff said, We had no money, but we could dig up a buck or two to go down to this liquor store that happened to sell this great wine called Night Train, and it would fuck you up for a dollar. Five dollars, and you'd be gone. And we lived off the stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly like this this runaway train of just drunk hooligans playing this song. Definitely. Yeah. um, It's just a feel-good song. It's about drinking, getting fucked up, and and all these things. With you saying that, I was wondering, would you happen to know if there's a song out there called Goonbag by any chance? There's a fucking market for it if there is. (laughs) Because, I mean, that is a hell of a song name. Yeah, yeah. There has to be. All right. There has to be, right? So, interestingly, for this song, Paul Stanley from Kiss, who they wanted to produce the album, and he's a big name, he's from Kiss, you know, he's a rock star. Mm -hmm. And so he went to the apartment and they, you know, like Slash and Stradlin were passed out on heroin. So when they woke up, they played him some demos and they played him this song, Night Train. And Paul Stanley said, like, yeah, I like it, but I think the chorus needs an extra hook. You know, like it might needs a, it's just not quite good enough. And as soon as Axl Rose heard that, he was he was dead to him. Mm. Like he never spoke to Paul Stanley ever again. He didn't even look at him. He just walked out of the room because mm. he dared criticize the music. And then Stanley started hearing that Slash was spreading rumors that he was gay. So the behavior of 13-year-old boys with hundreds of thousands of dollars and immense musical talent. Yeah, yeah. Pretty ridiculous. The, the hits keep coming. Mr. Brownstone, which is, again, very different vocals from Axel, and I love this song. Mm-hmm. This is a fantastic song, shows the range, and this song is about heroin addiction. As I mentioned just then, Slash, Izzy Stradlin cooked all the time out of their minds. Izzy was both using and selling heroin at the time to make ends meet. And this is a song where they're complaining about their addiction, where they're singing, like, I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so a little got more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great heroin song. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, w- I would totally agree with you. I, w- I, w- I wrote in my notes, like, heroin addiction never sounded so good. <laughs> I mean... Be- like, Red Hot Chili Peppers did sell it to us a little bit, yeah. but Guns N' Roses really, really selling it to me. And it's fascinating you said that, because I was thinking of our previous episode uh, of Guns N' Roses. Anyone listening, check that out. But on that album, in Californication, they talk about uh, drug addiction and heroin addiction and stuff. And there is a very much, uh, they do it in a very somber way, right? Um, even though the music is very sweet and melodic, it's very somber and at, at times tragic. But this song, if you ne- weren't really listening to the lyrics, you would think it's just like a cool party, feel good song. But they're like talking about getting fucked up on drugs man like hardcore shit you know and um i always love the line that says i get i get up around seven but get out of bed at nine i was like fuck man that sounds that's so great (laughs) so true yeah you know they didn't know they didn't even have iphones i know that's what i mean that's so relevant (laughs) um but i always dug that and i and this track is so great um at this point in the album when I'm listening to it on my headphones, this is where I realize a massive factor why I think this album is is really great is that the mix is 
done so so well because you can li- you can hear every instrument clearly exactly and again harkening back to a, a red hot chili peppers review like you couldn't it's just all like a mess of like it sounds good but it's just all a mess of instruments mm-hmm. and distortion this like this album is never loud enough because it mixed so well you can hear everything you always want to turn it up like this album kicks ass yeah exactly exactly so um um, they mixed it so so well to the point you know like you just want to turn it up um and, and soak it all and soak it all in whereas you know compared to uh love is for suckers even with the title track i felt that song was mixed the worst on that whole album once i was listening to it i felt like the volume went up automatically and the whole even the whole album sounds really muffled like sometimes the guitars and the riffs are louder than uh d's voice or the background uh, vocals, and um, that was uh, a massive factor why I, I didn't really care for uh, for their album at all. This is a uh, reasoning is because Guns N' Roses were so committed to their artistry that this was one of the final big rock records, classic rock records, that was mixed the old-fashioned way. Like, no drum machines or you know drum patterns or whatever. Everything was edited on actual two-inch tape. Everything was... People like five people pushing faders at once on a non-digital analog mixing board. Like this is a very old school mixed album, mixed for vinyl. So it sounds different from an album like Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet, or Mm -hmm. Love Is For Suckers, Mm -hmm. which was all done digitally with these new computers. They got this music on computers now. Yeah, It's, It's way different. And so it still sounds very classic in a way that other albums from 1987 or 1988 do not. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. Take a pause for the cause. We'll be back with more When Albums Collide. G'day. How's it going? Nice to meet you. I'm Stu. I'm Chris. I'm Dave. And we're the Pool Boys. We're the hosts of Pool Boys Recommend. Recommend. It's a podcast where we suggest stuff to each other. We do it and then we review it. You remember like show and tell at school? It's kind of like that, but this week I had a mental breakdown. (laughs) You're a music lover, Stu, okay? I am, yes. What is this going to be? And so I want you to listen to B-52's seminal classic Love Shack 100 times. Uh, One. Oh my god. You know, it's just when you're going to sleep, when you're having a shower. 100 times. You can start playing it now, maybe. Oh my god. You, you have you're only yourself to blame if next episode I come back on the air and I'm like, oh, hey, how's it going? Here's another cheeky little clip for you. Oh, this podcast is great. That was a dramatisation of you enjoying the podcast in the future. When you check out Pool Pool Boys Recommend. Recommend. Find us on Spotify and Stitcher and Google Podcasts. Podcasts, Even our own website. You know where to get podcasts. Come on. Come on. You're listening to one now. Back on the podcast, Pedro, we're talking uh, Love is for Suckers versus Appetite for Destruction, the Guns N' Roses versus Twisted Sister. Mm -hmm. Definitely the first Guns N' Roses song I ever heard and always going to be a sentimental favorite, Paradise City. Mm -hmm. Definitely. This is a classic song. Amazing rock song. Uh, what is your connection to it? I just, I just, it's just one of those songs that you just always heard. Um, whether it be on the radio, on MTV, VH1, shows you how old I am. I'm fucking still watching MTV videos, but it was just always out there. And um, it, I think it just, it also transcended just rock music. It almost becomes pop because it was just on the radio all the time. And I really think this is a rock masterpiece with the themes, the, the guitars, the music, the lyrics, everything. It's just, um, it's just, a, a, it's, it's 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 a perfect 10 all the way. I always was wondering, like, where is that Paradise City? Is he talking about Los Angeles or, or is he talking about maybe somewhere out in the country? Because, yeah, I always thought it was uh, it had Southern rock influences because I can imagine, you know, Southern rock art like Leonard Skinner uh, covering this song and, 
you know, it would have the same type of feel to it, like take me back down to Alabama or something, or you know, take me it's back. It's the guitar tone at the start. It's almost banjo like, right? That down, 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 yeah. It's almost like the strumming of a, a plucking of a banjo. Like it's very down south. You're right. Yeah, exactly. So I always, uh, I always love that. Um, and I think that's uh, a big credit to its popularity. Of course, the original lyrics to it was Take Me Down to the Paradise City where the girls are fat and they have big titties. Mm. Funny they changed that. Yeah. I guess it didn't fly with their record company, but also very um, very ahead of its time because Lizzo would definitely get away with it, with the lyrics like that now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It just goes to show like how immature and, and naive they were because that's it, like... It's, it's weird too because you think... Oh, these guys are like strung out heroin addicts. They're partying all the time, but they're also like twenty-two. Yeah, and have the minds of fourteen-year-olds. Exactly, and 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 if you're uh, you know, like a fourteen-year-old kid that's just like writing a song, like the first thing is like, take me down to the city. What rhymes with city? Titties. Yeah, let's go with that. So, um, um, and then yeah. you make a big fart noise with your mouth. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's probably for the best that they changed it. On the Twisted Sister album, Me and the Boys, mm. which is another... This is one of their two ty- types of songs. It's us versus them. It's the lads versus you. Yeah. And it was just... There, was, there are so many better songs that deal with this concept or even just feature the word boys that I, I couldn't get into it at all. It was just very... I felt like Snyder was running out of steam here. And I was thinking, man, me and the boys. I wish I was listening to like Thin Lizzy's. The boys are back in town. Dude, I I thought I thought exactly that. Exactly yeah. the same. Or you know, like Boys Light Up or Boys of Summer or just Silence. Silence would also be pretty good yeah. compared to this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, this is this is a poor attempt at a a, a guy's anthem. You know, um, mm. it's just... and, that, and like Thin Lizzy, Boys are back in town. They come out like twelve years before this. Like yeah. it's so much worse. Yeah, yeah. It's just um, it's a reach and it just it falls very very short. You know, um, especially. Very weak lyrics, like, me and the boys, we know our destiny, just how it is and how it's going to be. Me and the boys take what we need. Get in our way and we'll make you bleed. To the victor go the spoil in our creed, just me and the boys. Mm, all right, man. It's just, I don't know, man. It's just kind of, it's corny. Um, It's just It's so lame. corny. Yeah. But that's why I've never liked glam metal. Mm-hmm. Is I'm fine with like people dressing androgynously and like the the mascara and makeup. And by the way, Axl Rose, you know, he was wearing leather chaps and a G string mm-hmm. on stage, you know, and like eyeliner and stuff. It, it's fine. It's it's just that's all fine. But this lyrical content is so lame. Like it's so corny. How could you possibly think that's cool? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you are like a little ten year old kid and eleven year old kid, and your parents are worried that this music's not good for the children, we need to think about the children and all that stuff. There's some kids that probably gravitate to that because they're like, "Oh, that's so badass!" You know, what's cooler than a guy who wears uh, makeup and long hair and doesn't give a fuck about what other people think? In a way, they are breaking societal norms. Um, dressing up like that and and acting about so but i just think it does fall short when you compare it to a band like guns and roses where a the music's better and but b they are really like hardcore living that lifestyle and yeah they have this rock aesthetic but they're not wearing makeup you know what i mean i mean i'm sure those guys don't even fucking shower for days (laughs) um, between shows or whatever so uh I think that's a, a massive difference. Yeah, so comparing and contrasting the next song on Appetite for Destruction, My Michelle, which is written about one of Axel's former flings, former girlfriends called Michelle. Yeah. And he's quoted as saying, quote, I know a girl named Michelle and she became a really good friend of the band's and I was going out with her for a while. And so everything in this song is a true story. Slash and some other members of the band said, that's kind of too heavy to say about poor sweet Michelle. She'll freak out. I'd written this nice, sweet song about her, and then I looked at it and thought, that doesn't really touch any basis of reality. So I put down an honest thing. It describes her life. I showed her the lyrics after about three weeks of debating it, and she was so happy that someone didn't just paint a pretty picture of her life. Mm. She loves it. It was a real song to her, not something hokey. Underline that last word. It's not something hokey. Mm -hmm. And this is a song where she talks about, like, you know, your mum isn't around, your dad works in porno, you love heroin, you stay up all night. So it's a pretty grim picture of someone that he was going out with, but at least it's honest. Yeah, um, and, and I think the the honesty is the biggest thing because, yeah, he could have just gone for uh, 
a power ballad or just talk about um, you, you're, you're so sweet or whatever. He could have gone the Twisted Sister route, <laughs> you know, like a song later in the Twisted Sister uh, album where he's, I think it's called like All I Need Is You or something like that. Yeah, he just went for that real shit and she really appreciated it. I think it's a, a testament to the the rawness of uh, of appetite for destruction. So you know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of a baby boomer using memes to try fit in with the cool crowd. Because Guns N' Roses, they're young, they're hip, they are the next big thing, and Twisted Sister are already past it. Even though they might be like actually quite similar in ages or whatever, mm-hmm. they're already past it. Right? One bad habit sums it up for mm-hmm. me. The lyrics. I'm not mean, I'm not rude, but don't make me lose my patience, dude. Yeah. I don't curse, well, just a bit. Somehow, gee whiz and golly, don't make it. Considering the fact that Axl Rose just straight up says the word motherfucker in these songs, and, spoiler alert, records himself having live sex on a track later in the album, saying golly and gee whiz is pretty lame. Yeah, yeah. I imagine what would happen at an awards show, or even at a tour or something, these two bands meet up with each other. Twisted Sister, Dee Snider, he walks up to Axel, like, how's it going, fellow children? Yeah. And then Axel Rose just turns around and says, fuck off, man. Like, we, you are fucking lame. Yeah. Get away from us. Uh, that's how I imagine it would go down. Yeah, especially with Axel's reputation. I think he was diagnosed with bipolar disease. Yeah, definitely. So he's constantly like up and down. And I think that was a massive thing with the deterioration of the band because he would just be happy. He'll be up and then be down and be pissed people off and and just and just not give a fuck. And as you were saying before, they're what in their early 20s. They just got some money. They're one of the biggest bands in the world. They don't give a fuck. Whereas someone like D. Snyder, he like D. Snyder doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. Really, I didn't know. Straight edge. Yeah, yeah. He's pretty straight edge. And I think he said he doesn't curse. I don't quote me on that, but I, it would fit the fit the bill. I would believe it. Yeah, yeah. his addiction is really good mascara. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. In a way, I mean, this song is true to who he is, but. You're being compared to Guns N' Roses, who at the time is arguably the biggest, baddest rock band in the world. I mean, they've been dubbed the world's most dangerous band because of their excessive lifestyle and, and like their hard edge music. And you're coming up with lyrics like... cool man like i don't yeah it's just like lame yeah lame yeah like all right man it sucks man that song is so lame so lame that it's cool no you bring up axel because a very volatile person and they've had breakups and all that all that guns and roses very volatile band with him at the head sort of manic depressive maybe bipolar but he's very popular with women yeah like people like women love axel rose even fat Axl Rose with the cornrows. Yeah. They love Axl Rose. So, like, a next song, like, the Think About You song, it's just, like, a standard love song, one of the weaker tracks on the album. But is Axl Rose the most attractive ginger man? Like, I'm all about ginger pride, all about redheads flaunting their stuff. Mm-hmm. He's got to be up there for most attractive redheads at his peak. Yeah, at his peak, for sure, because he has the artist thing, he has the rock and roll thing. He, I, I also, I'm also under the impression that at his peak, he's also that sensitive artist kind of guy, you know? He's that, like, girls or strippers or whatever would take him in, and he's just like, yeah, I've been homeless for, um, for you know, X amount of years, and... You know, my dad used to, you know, talk shit to me and, and things like that. I just come from a broken home. And his girls would be like, oh, my God, he's so sweet. He's just like a puppy. Is this a tactic you use, Pedro? No, not at all. Not at all. I'm just myself. <laughs> you, just t- you just tell him about the podcast. Yeah. It's, it's, you know what? That's exactly. I tell him about the podcast and the, and the panties are dropping like you wouldn't believe it. You know what's crazy in my notes? Because I was just scrolling down when you said like, oh, he's like sensitive. I'm like, oh, yeah, like that song that he, that he sang. I didn't even write it down because it was like a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. I didn't even write down, but sweet child of mine, like... Such a foregone, con- like, yes, it was a very popular song. And it obviously was a big hit with female audiences because mm-hmm. it showed that sensitive side. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think it um, says it all right there, you know. I mean, yeah, the the album is hard edge, but you have that little uh, 
glimpse into a softer side of the band. And I think it is their biggest hit off this album, uh, if I'm not mm, mistaken. Yeah, I'd say that, yeah. It's weird because it, it you're seeing the two different strategies these bands are employing. Like Guns N' Roses are just doing something authentic. We're doing a softer song, singing about singing about like a love song. Whereas Twisted Sister, they have songs like "I Want This Night to Last Forever." Yeah, and this is such a classic fucking. We really want to hit single. Like God, we want to hit single. Why don't we just repeat the same line over and over until it's burned into the frontal cortex of everyone listening? Like that'll get them. That'll that'll get us a hit. Fatal misunderstanding here of what makes hit songs and what makes love songs work. It's so bad. Yeah, definitely. I found this song um, to be totally skippable. Um, it's just like a typical party song, but it's nothing here. It's just um, it's it's forgettable. Totally forgettable. So there's a there's a couple sex songs. Like anything goes, and it is a very raunchy band. Guns N' Roses are all always flaunting with innuendo and that sort of thing. Anything goes. One of the oldest Guns N' Roses songs dating back to 1981. So this is this song is already six years old by the time they record it, and it was written by Axl Rose and guitarist Izzy Stradlin for their former band Hollywood Rose. It's a sex song, but it is not a patch on the following sex song, Rocket Queen. Mm-hmm. Final track of the album, Rocket Queen. I'm just now. I rarely do this, but I'm going to read verbatim just from a Rolling Stone story about it, because whatever I say, whatever words I conjure will not capture how well this is written. So this is a Rolling Stone article by Brian Hyatt from 2007. Quote, Axl Rose was lying nude inside a Manhattan recording studio's darkened vocal booth, working out some unorthodox last-minute overdubs. Tape was rolling, and he knew something wasn't right. Beneath him was a cute 19-year-old stripper called Adriana Smith, who happened to be his drummer's girlfriend. Come on, Adriana, make it real, Rose barked, poising mid-coitus. Stop faking. On that warm weekend evening in the spring of 1987, engineer Vic Daglio had set up a top-of-the-line vocal microphone to capture the sounds of Rose and Smith having sex, and at one point had to dash into the booth to adjust the mic as they went at it. (laughs) It was like a Ron Jeremy set in there, Daglio recalls. Smith wanted to get back at Guns N' Roses drummer Steven Adler for cheating on her, and had always liked the singer better anyway. Mm. I would do anything Axel asked me to, says Smith, now a 53-year-old mum. He's fucking magical. Though she was drunk and giggly that day, Smith eventually gave Rose what he wanted, her orgasmic moans, which ended up high in the mix on Appetite for Destruction's final track, Rocket Queen, are for real. But when Adler found out what was captured on the band's album, the drummer... Quote, fucking freaked out, Smith says. That's from Brian Hyatt, Rolling Stone. Is it any wonder the band ended up hating each other's guts? No, absolutely not. Imagine that. Like, these guys are you're toying with and you find out. He not only slept with your girlfriend, but then recorded it and putting it on your album that was then sold to over 30 million people. That is crazy. Um, yeah, it makes total sense why. <laughs> I mean, it, it, going into the second album, it's like, um, I'm sure there's going to be some arguments. I mean, yeah, exactly. 1987, a major studio album with literal amateur pornography recorded onto it. We have come a long way from Paul McCartney saying he wants to hold our hand. Twisted Sister think they're edgy. There's no patch on edginess here. My favorite YouTube comment, perhaps of all time, is on the Rocket Queen single on YouTube, where Monkey Brain commented, My mum said she's on this song, but I don't hear her singing, question mark. That's hilarious, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's good. That being said, like, okay, take out the orgasmic moans um, halfway through the song. The change in tempo at the end of this song and the mood in the bridge is fabulous. I mm-hmm. love this... When he sings, he sings a particular part in the bridge where he sings, no one needs the sorrow, no one needs the pain. And I thought, stop, instant rewind. I had to replay it because it was like, that is an amazing moment. Almost shades of November rain that would they would go on mm-hmm. later to write, but... Such mm-hmm. a good moment. I listened to it like five times in a row. It was so good. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's fantastic. And I love November Rain too. Um, I really do. So, um, yeah, I thought it was a, a great way to um, to close out the album. And because of that recorded sex. Was it 
did, did it, do which happened another day? Did they have full blown intercourse? Because I also heard it was just a um, <laughs> just a uh, how do we clean this up? Uh, a fellatio uh, on the so, mic. So what? Or him giving her fellatio? Uh, well, that would be kind of lingus, but I heard it was uh, uh, like just oral sex that they were having. Well, no, on, it would be very the, because it's it's her moans. Like she's like yeah. So it'd be very difficult for her to talk with her mouth full if you. So I think mm. it was sex. Yeah, you got a good point there. I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> um, hey, if we ever want to spice up the podcast, do you have any stripper friends? Um, look. <laughs> I have nothing to say more about Twisted Sister because there's two more tracks on the album, but they do nothing for me. Especially the like the final track, "Yeah Right," was offensive to me. How bad it was! Yeah. It was just really bad. I know what you're saying, where you respect D. Snyder and maybe you feel bad for him, but he cannot carry an album by himself. He and they couldn't nah. do it as a band, really. So it's for the best they broke up after this because. Even though these two albums came out like a couple weeks apart, they got erased off the map by how much better Appetite for Destruction is. Yeah, I mean, you you are all I need. It's fine. It's a fine power ballad. It's but it's nothing to note, particularly against a song like, you know, Sweet Child of Mine, which is a, a rock classic. I think Sweet Child of Mine is just going to go down as one of the one of the greatest songs ever, just because of it's a hard edged song, but the lyrics are so sweet. And sincere that um it's a it's a perfect blend. And then when yeah right, it's it's another one of those uh, totally skippable songs. Um, it tries to be an anthem, and I think a lot of these songs on Twisted Sisters tries to be an anthem, but it just it just doesn't work out. Um, it just falls really short. After this, this is an album that was meant to be his solo album, written by him. I think he got the idea that trying to attempt a solo career wasn't in the cards because this was kind of uh this was meant to be the launch pad and um the plane didn't take off so unfortunately for him if you can't make it with the blanket of twisted sister how are you going to make it on your own yeah yeah exactly so um this is a small quibble but one of the bonus tracks on this album love is for suckers which i didn't listen to but it was like reissued you know 12 years later with bonus tracks one of the bonus tracks is called statutory date which I think is in poor taste. Mm. Even in 1987, that's in poor taste. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Where are they now? Twisted Sister played their final concert in November 12th, 2016, following the death of their drummer, AJ Perot. Now D. Snyder seems to be spending most of his free time attacking people on Twitter for not wearing face masks. And Guns N' Roses are continuing their world tour, half a billion dollars, but they've postponed their North American arena tour for obvious reasons, uh, with three original members, um, that being Duff, Slash, and Axel. The other two have their drug issues and issues with the band, so they aren't returning. What I would like to do is try to work out and summarize why was Appetite for Destruction successful and why wasn't Lovers for Suckers successful? Because why did I find Lovers for Suckers so boring? It's a bit of a cop-out to say, well, Guns N' Roses are just better. Duh. So I'm Mm -hmm. going to... I've boiled it down to three things which is, okay. one, the strength of songwriting. It's so diverse. You've got all these different people chipping in songs. Slash is an amazing guitarist. Axel, amazing vocalist, but they all have talents. You've got a workload that's shared by Axel, Slash, Izzy, Adler, Duff. Dee Snider couldn't handle the workload. Two, the guitar sound doesn't sound glam metal. It doesn't sound dated. To my ear, it sounds really good still and the guitar tone is a result of engineering of slash's desire he really loved the blues all their influences are the rolling stones and heavy metal he got a guitar that was custom built a 1959 les paul replica it was made by some guy in a trailer behind a guitar shop in redondo beach it cost six thousand dollars the guy only made 13 of them and then he died and so this is a very particular guitar that has a very particular sound, custom guitar, and the way Slash plays it is obviously wonderful. And mm-hmm. three, Axel's vocals destroy most other vocalists in the world, but they destroy Dee Snider's vocals. Like, there's no competition. You combine all those things and you have a classic album and an album literally no one has listened to in the past 20 years. Yeah, um, I agree with you. Um, I yeah, I don't know if you saw in the research that they Twisted Sister put out a greatest hits album um i think in the 2000s or something and none of the songs featured on love is for suckers is on the greatest hits album Yikes. 
which yeah which shows you that even the band doesn't go back to this uh to this album at all yeah it's all those things um the collaboration with uh the members of uh guns and roses coming together doing their thing um i think another heavy player was uh mtv the ability that they were able to um broadcast and promote guns and roses and present them in a certain way because if you watch like a video like Sweet Child of Mine or Paradise City, it's uh, it's just raw. It's it's almost like just footage. Whereas it is video, it is. And I never knew like is that concerts they actually did or they just film it for this. But it's like there's thousands of screaming fans going crazy for them. So you already think they're popular, and it's got the shots yeah. of them all looking fucking so cool. It, it it is a big seller, and I I said as I said at the top of the show, like they struggled to get on MTV, but as soon as they put the first video on they exploded like people yeah saw it and they're like there's something about this yeah exactly so compared to you know twisted sister if you watch their videos this is very much slapstick they're you know they're in makeup they're knocking down walls and and all these things it's almost like a beastie boy video the way it's so cartoony so um if you just put these you know these two together you're just kind of like well one definitely looks cooler than the other one one looks like a fucking cartoon so so it's that um the question i did want to ask you and i mentioned on the top of the show because with guns and roses uh, and to a point twisted sister there was this idea that these are rockers and especially with guns that they're living this lifestyle of excess and drinking and partying hard and and you know ripping toilet seats out of the ground or whatever is that a, does that exist anymore do rock stars exist anymore um in, in today's day, what do you think? God, um, I think heroin became very uncool. Maybe because yeah. so many people were dying because of it. Um, and it's I'm saying there's obviously punk bands and rock bands that are still doing hard drugs out there. Obviously, yeah. I feel like it, that that sort of bad boy image transferred over to hip hop and over to rap, right? Mm. So now the thing that sells or the bands we hear about are like indie rock bands that are a little bit more clean cut and a little bit more intelligent. Things like that. I don't doubt that the Strokes have done their body weight in cocaine or, you know, the Arctic Monkeys are drinking heavily. But I just don't think the bands that are strung out on heroin ever get those breaks anymore. The people that do Mm. get those breaks that are strung out on opiates are rappers and that sort of thing. Whether it's for the best, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm shocked that, you know, the members of Guns N' Roses are all alive still. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Because that seems to be unbelievable. But uh, I think that just the culture has changed a little bit um, and it sort of became uncool for a little bit to do all that stuff, at least publicly. All right, cool. Interesting. Um, I don't know. I couldn't even name a, a big rock band now, but like a, a rock band like, oh, they trashed their hotel room. I feel like Twitter and like Instagram would be like, oh, those guys are lame. How could you damage property like that? Yeah, exactly. That's what I was getting at. Like, I don't even, I couldn't even name like a, a rock group that I'm just like, okay, those are rockers and they're just like you know they're tearing it up you know there's obviously bands but i I just nothing comes to mind this is exactly the climate in which a new band emerges and they're completely different and they're just tearing shit up and then they get really successful yeah for sure pedro you know how we like to finish these things you gotta choose a song from both albums what do you got all right so um from appetite for destruction i'm gonna choose mr brownstone um i think that uh I think it's just the song is mixed so well. You hear all the instruments. And like I was saying, um, it's a song about heroin addiction, but it just it sounds fun. <laughs> and I think that's um, uh, a big thing. Uh, well, a big appeal about Guns N' Roses is that they're living this fucking hedonistic life. But it just it sounds terrific. And they, they're, they're definitely having fun doing it and and. And they really convey that in their music. Um, and then with Twisted Sisters, Love is for Suckers. If you want to get a good feel for what this album is all about, yeah, I'm going to go with the the title track, Love is for Suckers. It was the corniest song on the album for me. The interlude where Dee's just talking that shit. I'm just kind of like, Ugh. like it's just, it's just mad corny to me. And I think uh, it sums up the entirety of the album. Um, even though I love Dee for what he does, and uh, speaking his voice, I just sorry, D. I know you're. I know he's a fan of the show. 
Yeah, yeah, sorry, G. Um, for Guns N' Roses, I'm going to go with Rocket Queen, because I wasn't that familiar with the song previously, and I didn't know about the live sex recording or anything uh, previously. Um, so that's a fantastic song, but the bridge change on that and the tempo on the bridge, oh, I'll be singing that all week long. Lovers for Suckers, Twisted Sister, I'm going to go with... It's hard because you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, as they say. Mm-hmm. And you can't polish a turd. And this is quite the turd. But I'm going to go with Hot Love because it mm-hmm. is not like Twisted Sister. It's them fully embracing the sellout commercial pop that is feel good. You put it on the jukebox at your local bar and everyone sings along to it. Hot Love. So that is my choice. Um, that just about does it for the episode. I'd like to remind everyone, reach out to us, Instagram, Facebook, When Albums Collide. Also, rate, like, and subscribe us on iTunes. Apparently, that helps. Whether it does or not, <laughs> who's to say? Yeah. Um, but please give us a shout-out. We would really appreciate that. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yeah, see ya. Bye. D, um, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, what's the best way to say it? it's um, it's uh, fuck. And you can edit all this out. I'm leaving my, <laughs> I'm leaving my words. I'm leaving that in. Yeah. <laughs>